Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And you are joined today by myself, Jacob. And Sue Bolton. Hi. So we're going to be your presenters today um, for the program. And, yeah, we have quite a lot. Um, We're going to probably try and cover a lot of the kind of current kind of developments that have kind of happened in politics, um, putting the emphasis on left-wing activism and, you know, struggles of ordinary people. But before we um, get into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that Green Left Radio today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation, I like to acknowledge that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded and that FreeCR and Green Left Radio is, you know, committed to the, to, in, to fighting for Indigenous sovereignty and, and justice. Okay. Um, so, um, Sue, I think the, the kind of first kind of news story I kind of wanted to have a, uh, start off a bit of a kind of discussion about is, on February 1st, um, actually, in, in Britain was kind of hit by probably the biggest day of strikes in, in, a, in a decade. Um, and this is, I guess, in the context of the fact that um, inflation is currently, I think it's wavering between 10 to 11 kind of percent. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of um, workers are kind of feeling the kind of pinch. In fact, it's very much Britain... The current political situation, the economic situation in Britain is that it's actually that of a crisis, um, in a sense that, you know, people are struggling to kind of pay rent, um, people are struggling to pay for food. There's been this whole, um, there's been, you know, there's just been high rates of, of poverty, etc. And of course, a lot of the public sector unions are very much in, uh, have been in negotiations with governments over, over pay. Um, and governments have very much in the context, um, despite the fact that inflation's more than 10 to 11% and wages have generally been stagnant in, in Britain, most of the public sector, sectors have only been offered a 5% kind of pay increase. But probably one of the more, um, expiring kind of moments in, in this strike was the fact that up to very much half a million people participated in a, in a, in essentially a coordinated strike. This strike involved teachers, um, civil servants, border force staff and train drivers, basically a lot of workers who are within public sectors. And in the context of the, the school strike, um, seven or of, of eight pe- um, schools in England and Wales were affected by the strike with about one in 10 schools closing completely. And then there's one, one of the probably the more fascinating kind of things is there's generally been a good level when it comes to the teacher strike. There's been a, gr- a very good level, I guess, of public support from from the parents. Um, with a poll from Parent Kind, which I think is a 
you know, pretty a major kind of website for parenting sort of resources within within Britain found that fifty four percent of parents supported the strike, and um and there's um there's a quote from a report in um in 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 the Guardian that at one of the at one of the rallies in Westminster the RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch um that probably people have been kind of who has become quite prominent for his very staunch stance around workers' rights in, in Britain, told thousands of striking workers outside Down Streets, we are the working class and we are back. And here he added, we are here, we are demanding change, we refuse to be bought and we are going to win for our people on our terms. Um, so, yeah, um, there's been, it, I think it's just been a very kind of inspiring development. The fact that there's been such a uptick in industrial kind of action, um, and, and strikes in, in Britain. And because I think these, these strikes have actually been part of a, a series of kind of escalating kind of strikes. And one kind of a report I actually kind of read is that within the teachers unions within Britain, they are planning to kind of start a long time yeah, a, a, a week, uh, I think a month of kind of campaigning where they'll go from school to school, basically trying to camp, um, campaign to parents about why they're going on strike, because I think they're pretty sure that the plan is they're going to build up to another strike um, in the in, a, in subsequent weeks. So, well, yeah. they've got another strike planned across England on the 28th of February. Mm. So this is not just a one-off. This is a concerted... Uh, part of a concerted industrial cam ta- campaign to win more um, resources, higher wages, and also um, also to reduce workloads. Um, because and some of the union union unionists and union leaders are saying this can't all just be blamed on inflation because wages have been stagnating and falling behind price rises way before, long before the um, inflation skyrocketed. And that's a similar story to Australia. And actually unions in Australia and workers in Australia need to take a leaf out of the book of, of workers in um, in Britain uh, because we've got a similar story here. The cost of living crisis isn't as uh, extreme as it is in Britain. It's much more extreme, but there is a cost of living crisis here as well. And it seems that um, when you read the reports of the strike on the 1st of February, which brought people um, across the board in a range of unions and sectors out, and they didn't just have a big protest and go on strike. They also had picket lines outside of each of their workplaces as well, um, right right across the country. Um, but people who were part of that strike, I mean, they certainly felt empowered by the fact that a lot of different workers from different sectors came out. And in addition to train drivers and civil servants and uh, education workers in um, schools and universities, etc. Um, drivers uh, who are members of the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union also came out. Um, people felt empowered by the fact that everyone was out. But they've also got their own anti-union laws just like we have. I suspect in Australia we've got the worst in the OECD, but in um, throughout Britain... Um, you know, unions had to, you know, go through a lot of hoops in order to be able to take um, legal industrial action. 
um, we, you know, because the bosses and the bosses' parties in government have um, tried to tie up unions with really difficult processes, difficult ballot type situations in order to try and stop workers going on strike. And that's the key reason why wages have been stagnating. Um, so this is really important. So 28th of February is the next major strike, but um, there's uh, there are other strike days planned by different unions in between. Mm. Yeah, and um, I think probably yeah, there's kind of a lot of a lot of kind of similarities to kind of be found with with because in a sense Australia's almost like in a situation that probably Britain was probably like a few uh, um, much earlier before the kind of industrial kind of broke industrial wave kind of broke out. Um, so, you know, it is possible you, we could see, you know, if the cost of living does get worst in, in Australia, we could potentially see a sort of uptick in some in, industrial action. I mean, actually, probably one of the more, the greatest, the best sort of reflections of, of this was probably in the nurses, um, the nurses kind of dispute in WA, where, you know, essentially nurses in, in WA, in the WA union, um, have, in Western Australia have been, you know, fought for, have basically been pushing for a 10% sort of wage increase above, above inflation. And so that's one of the few times that, it, you know, one of the small examples of a, of a union, um, of, un- of work, rank and file workers pushing for a much better pay deal than what's been offered because, but, because for the most part, most, um, most EBAs that are kind of going through in Australia are generally going are generally pay increases that are just way, are still way before and below inflation. The other thing that was highlighted, which anyone who's uh, works as a teacher will be familiar with here as well, um, is that some of the interviews with teachers who were part of involved in the strike in the UK um, were talking about the absolute nightmare workloads. Um, and unsustainable workloads that they've got, um, which is forcing some of them to question whether or not they should continue as teachers. But in addition to that, the resourcing levels um, where there aren't enough resources and teachers are often put in a position of having to fork out of, out of their own pay to pay for resources for students and um, there are a lot of school students um, who joined the picket lines and the protests uh, voluntarily. I mean, they weren't dragooned by parents, but they were taken by parents, but they came voluntarily because the kids can see that there aren't enough resources um, in the classroom. So, um, I mean, it really, there was a huge amount of support of public support for these strikes. And, you know, obviously um, there's a rotten Tory government in power that's trying to block pay rises, but um, it doesn't seem as if the Labor opposition has also made has made any supportive uh, comments about the strikes either. So it's um, really... Um, you know, I mean, it really shows that, you know, to really address these issues, you have to rely on the industrial strength and public support um, of for the strikers, striking workers. And um, I think probably one thing to kind of note is, I think when when it comes to the the current conservative government, the current kind of Tory government, I think this is kind of a classic kind of example 
of, you know, how capitalist go- um, governments generally kind of govern in a sense in crisis. They're generally, you know, they're, they're generally in this kind of position. And in fact, this is the kind of propaganda that they're trying to give because essentially the propaganda they're trying to give is, we we have to deal with inflation. That's why you have to kind of make a sacrifice. And of course, there's been you know some some um, more con- some con- some of the politicians have even tried to sort of argue that you know we're 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 facing hard times because we have to we have to win against Russia in context of the of the of the of the war in Ukraine. Um, and then there's there's also the kind of arguments that kind of putting forward because what's what's actually what the the, the Tory governments are actually doing in the UK. Is they're essentially wanting to say they're in this economic crisis. They're basically wanting to put the cost on on ordinary workers, and they want workers to kind of pay for the costs of their, which is for the crisis that is essentially of their own making. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, that's exactly that's exactly right. And in reality, um, the whole inflation crisis is not caused by workers and workers demanding too much in terms of wages. It's being caused by companies deciding to profit here and jacking up prices just because they can get away with it and blame it on inflation. Um, meanwhile, workers are tied in knots through these terrible anti-union laws to try and prevent them from taking strike action. So, you know... Yeah, we really need to take take a leaf out of the book of these British workers. All right. Um, I'm just going to play um, a quick announcement and we'll kind of move on to some other news stories. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Travellers Aid Australia is offering free scooter safety training sessions. They will help mobility scooter and powered wheelchair users to practice their skills and build confidence in navigating their local community and accessing public transport. These sessions are delivered by trained facilitators and volunteers and are provided across Melbourne. For more information or to register interests, visit travellersaid.org.au, call on 03-9654-2600 or email info at travellersaid.org.au. Travellers Aid Australia is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And um, I was going to, I was thinking I'd play a quick song. Um, I'd play a song um, drawing on. Um, in Green Left, we have um, we have an article. Um, we ha- our we have a journal, um, journalist Matt Ward who regularly does uh, a kind of album roundup of of interesting kind of left wing political kind of music, and he's do- done a roundup of mu- of a series of albums that have come that have come out in um, in the past month. In, and the article you can read um, you can read up on the different the different um, the different albums he recommends on on the Green Left website, 10 new albums that aim to change the world in 2023. So I'm going to play um, from Winky D, um, which is a Zimbabwe um, musician. And basically, it's essentially, there's a lot of good sort of political kind of themes in, in a lot of his music. And this is drawn from his album, Arika Arika. So I'm going to go play um, play one of the tracks from that um, for our listeners. Um, the track is going to be um, Ibotsu. 
by by Winky D. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Kayuti, yuti, kosha yoti, life in kunanga ne kupi, ko wona mage vakota mitko puti, ko pinda paketo, ko blinga ne guchi, oliva tipire kuti. Manitura zira pupi ne kureva, se kutamba se kuseka. Ibozo, olite! Vanu nyepa, vanu nyepe zira, vanu zeza, vanu zeza zira, vanu spenda, vanu tenga, tenga.
All right. All right. You're listening to. Um, you're just listening to. Sorry, just kidding. You're just listening to Winky um, D, and um, you can find out um, about more sort of great kind of political music as I sort of um, as I introduced before. If you go on to greenleft.org.au and look out for the article ten, ten new albums that aim to change the world in 2023 by Matt Ward, and what you just heard here was a bit of a sample of some of the music um, that um, Matt Ward is recommending. Okay, now. For the next kind of part of the program, um, we'll get a, we're going to kind of cover um, some feature articles that have been published in Green Left this week. Um, and the kind of first kind of article I kind of want to highlight was, I guess, drawing on this article that was written, um, given a bit of a um, drawing on this article that was written by Lisa Gleason, and this is kind of responding, I guess, to some of the current commenting on some of the current kind of developments that have happened in Palestine, um, some of the tragic kind of developments that have happened in Palestine in, in the past week. And the background to this is that Israel, Israeli soldiers have um, stormed Janan and killed over 10, um, 10 Palestinians. And Lisa kind of makes a kind of comment here. While that, that was kind of occurring, members of, of, of Israelis registered professional cycling teams were training on roads in and around Geelong in the lead up to the Cattle Evans Great Ocean Road Race. And now I guess the, com- the comment that sort of, um, Lisa's sort of making here is that this kind of sponsorship of kind of professional cyclists and other professional sports players within within the Israeli state is it's very much a way by which the Israeli state tries to divert attention from its human rights abuses, sports washing apartheid to avoid accountability for denying basic human rights to Palestinians sits alongside um, Israel's art and culture washing. And going back to the kind of the kind of the 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 the, the the, you know, the story itself, you know, the Jenan raid was carried out in daylight rather than in the middle of the night, which is, I guess, kind of unusual and troubling. And Jahan, you know, one of the justifications that Israel did for, for this raid um, and this massacre was basic, on this basis that Jahan is this sort of stronghold for terrorist activity. That, you know, this this... This is the justification that kind of Israel kind of uses for its actions. The daylight raid on a Palestinian refugee community sends a single that, you know, raids can occur at any time as part of um, Israel's war on terror. And I think one of the kind of things as well is the, there's this kind of broader implication that's coming here that, you know, anything that, that pal- being Palestinian, Palestine or Palestinian equ- equals terrorism slash terrorism and anything has to be done to eradicate this and that and that's the kind of position that the Israeli state kind whether intelligence agencies had knowledge of a minute pollet by jihadists is almost besides the point Palestinian refugees as Lisa kind of argues here are living under almost constant violent occupation and any action to push back against this is seen as terrorism. You know, from Israel's perspective, people who object to living under apartheid are terrorists before they've even opened their mouths. So, yeah, what are your some sort of comments drawing a bit on this? Uh? I'm thinking a little bit about, because the Israeli government has form on this, is sometimes the Israeli government will do something really provocative in order to try and get a response from Palestinians 
that they can use to ramp up right-wing politics within Israel. And, I mean, now, this um, raid on Jenin refugee camp is... Um, like it's part of it's part of a pattern. It's not the first time something like this has happened. The Israeli government has been killing, you know, one, uh, you know, at least one Palestinian a week in January this year. Um, but uh, the response that the Israeli government has provoked is, I'm sure, is partly in order to uh, undercut the massive protest against the government that was in Israel just about a week or two ago, where 100,000 people came on the streets of Tel Aviv against the government. And while um, that protest wasn't necessarily pro-Palestinian, it was all sorts of people, including the queer community, um, and the opposition party, which is you know very right-wing as well, uh, although probably not as quite as right wing as the current government, um, that was a hundred thousand people on the streets against a government which had announced that it was going to give grant itself the right to overturn decisions made by the Supreme Court. Um, so you know, changing, you know, yeah, just um, interfering in the court process, um, etc. So. You know, 100,000 on the streets, if that movement kept going, that would be a bit of a danger to the government. And so I'm wondering if there is an element of um, using the Palestinians to try and undercut that movement. Um, you know, that, and, you know, despite the fact that the, the um, Israeli government is so right wing and has some, you know, like, Ultra right wing, ultra anti Palestinian um, politicians as part of that coalition. Um, the other thing is that they want to really arm Israelis to the teeth, um, in um, to give them the ability to just um, gun down Palestinians, cut lunch. Now that is already happening amongst. Um, Israeli settlers in the illegal settlements in the West Bank, uh, where, you know, they're just constant attacks at, on, uh, Palestinians, constant killings of Palestinians, because really these is illegal settlements. They're not just like nice little villages. They're really military forts. Um, you have to see these Israeli settlements as military forts, military installations, because that's what um, most of them or all of them are, um, military forts within, within, the, uh, within the West Bank. So this is sort of a really dangerous turn of events, and it's also, you know, alarming that um, the government is already penalising the families of these um, young uh, Palestinians who um, retaliated against the Israeli attack on Jenin camp by um, sealing up their homes and or bulldozing their homes and threatening to strip them of um, um, their right to live within um, Jerusalem. So, you know, this is just... Um, 
you know, the retaliation against the families of the two young Palestinians who retaliated um, is just really, you know, just devastating. And, of course, the Israeli government is already talking about um, furthering these sorts of re- um, retaliatory measures against the families of Palestinians who fight back. Yeah, and I think probably one thing to kind of note, I mean, drawing in one of the other things to note, in the, I guess in the context of, you know, the government, um, the, the newly kind of elected Israel government being even more right wing um, than its previous. In fact, it's almost in a sense one of the kind of um, characteristics of this new government is they're very much open, quite open about you know their, their the, the about the deliberate attempts to erase um, Palestine, and I think. Probably one of the things as well is they're very much ramping up. I think there there is a there is an agenda from 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 this government to kind of ramp up, you know, the de- demolishing of of Palestinian homes, etc., under the guise of fighting terrorism, because essentially that's that's the justification they kind of they have to, they have to kind of give to the to the Israeli sort of community, um, because in a sense, you know, generally you know the occupation has always been gone going, um, and. But I think with a more right-wing government, I expect that they're going to go expect more aggressive um, takeovers of, of land and and, exp- uh, and and killings of of Palestinians. And I think possibly, I mean, one of the other things to note is, I mean, this year is marking the kind of seventy-fifth anniversary of of Al Nakba, which was the which is a catastrophe when thousands of Palestinians were expelled from their homelands to establish the the state of Israel. So I think this is going to be there is going to likely be very important kind of protests kind of being called in this. And it's also likely where, you know, we'll likely see very active kind of resistance from the Palestinians against, against this occupy, against this ongoing sort of occupation. And I think, you know, it will be up to, you know, it will be important for left wing people and progressive people to kind of stand in solidarity and to be part of, you know, any sort of protests that are going to be called in these coming going. There's already going to be one at the State Library today at 6 pm that we definitely would like to recommend that people try and get along too. Well, also just to remember what the Nakba was like when um, Palestinians were expelled from Palestine in order for the Zionists and the European colonialists to create the State of Israel, um, the Palestinians were forced to flee as a result of bombings. The Palestinians were not armed. Um, there were um, terrorist gangs um, by the Zionists who'd been armed by Britain. Um, there were, you know, bombings and from uh, planes, etc. Um, and Palestinians were forced to flee with their, just their clothes on their back, and they expected to go home. And one, um, you know, one example which just gave you the sense of what Palestinian refugees feel is when uh, Hezbollah kicked Israel out of southern Lebanon and thousands of Palestinians on the um, Lebanese side of the border uh, went to the border um, and th- thousands of Palestinians on the Israeli side of board- the border, some who had been able to remain in Israel, went, they all went to the border and people were calling out from each side of the border, um, 
you know, holding up their, from the Lebanese side, holding up their rusty keys to their houses, calling out the names of their villages and people sort of passing parcels across, across the fence, the border fence. Um, <coughs> so this was, this huge outpouring sort of indicated that the Palestinians want to go home want to return to their villages. Um, and, you know, the Nakba was such a terrible, terrible event. Um, uh, so we really, that's um, the anniversary of Nakba is the 15th of May. Um, so there will be protests around Australia on that day. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, um, you can read, um, you can read this article, you can, um, you can read the article that we're kind of drawing on, um, greenleft.org.au, um, which is titled Jenin Massacre, a deadly start to 2023 for Palestinians. And you can also access, um, within that article, you can also see some of our other, on Green Left, you can also see some of our other fo- footage, um, our other coverage on, on Palestine. We also include, we also have a lot, a big, a long, um, piece on why Labour must take a stand on Palestine. But yeah, I might have, I might kind of pass Pass it on to Sue to kind of cover the kind of another news Green Left, the other kind of highlight that ca- um, came in Green Le- um, that it that was published in Green Left this week in terms of activist kind of news. Well, the what I would like to talk about is something which happened in Victoria, which is like a um, Australian George Floyd moment, as in a death in custody. Now we've seen in the United States uh, like. Many, 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 far too many um, uh, African Americans murdered by the police force in the United States. In Australia, we've had far too many Aboriginal people die at the hands of the prison system. Um, I mean, we've had other Aboriginal um, deaths in custody as a result of police action as well. But in Australia, it's been more in the prisons. And the case I want to talk about was Veronica Nelson, um, where there was a coronial inquest into her death. She was found dead on the 2nd of January 2020. She'd been arrested um, just a month before on shoplifting charges Um Shoplifting charges, which if she'd been found guilty of, wouldn't have even resulted in a custodial sentence. She would have received some sort of um, community service kind of order if she'd been found guilty. Now, she hadn't, Veronica Nelson had not been found guilty. Um, she was on remand um, as a result of these shoplifting fences. She didn't have access to a lawyer, so she defended herself. The police provided um, false information at her um, magistrate's hearing, which resulted in the magistrate denying her bail. Um, she was re- Veronica was really ill when she was when she entered the prison system. She was suffering from malnourishment. She was only thirty three kilograms. Um, she was also suffering withdrawal from drugs, but she also had had um, an illness which was also causing serious impact on her life, um, a, an undiagnosed genetic illness. And 
on this particular night in question, she she was in prison for three days um, before she died. But she, in that time, Veronica pressed the buzzer 40 times on the night that she died, calling for medical assistance 40 times. There is, um, as a result of the coronial inquest, um, CCTV footage of um, Veronica in her cell on the night she died um, in absolute agony. I couldn't watch it. It was just too distressing to watch. Um, but this, like... What this shows is the prejudice within the system, within the prison system, the prejudice against Aboriginal people, um, the prejudice against people who um, are suffering from drug addiction um, and prejudice against um, people like Veronica, the denial of legal support for her. Um, but also the denial of of medical assistance and just the assumption that you know this was no no big deal that she was that Veronica was calling for help. Um, the, the prison prisoners are served by some sort of private um, health company, so a private for profit health company in a private for profit prison, um, and the coroner has recommended criminal charges as a result of the denial of medical attention by the medical company. Um, so the de- also the coroner called for the urgent um, the urgent overturning of these bail laws which denied Pe- Veronica and many others like her. Um, access to bail. So they're all of these people who are stuck in jail, um, on remand as a result of, you know, charges which wouldn't result in any prison, uh, sentence if people were convicted. Um, but all of these people who are not convicted of anything, who are stuck in jail, um, for non-violent, trivial offences. In Veronica's case, uh, a trivial shoplifting offence. This is, you know, outrageous that once again we've got um, an, a prisoner, an Aboriginal prisoner, who's died as a result of a trivial offence which wouldn't attract a jail sentence. So this is just absolutely disgusting and it should be regarded as our George Floyd moment, as... You know, this should never happen again. Yeah, I think um, it's definitely, I think this is very much a kind of example of a, you know, of how, you know, our, you know, prison system and our laws, you know, disproportionately um, disadvantage um, First Nations people. And I think, yeah, it is a total, I think it is a total injustice um, what has happened. And I think it's, yeah, and it's also completely kind of unacceptable. Um, now, I mean, yeah, they are sort of, you know, they are kind of talking about, I think it's good that, um, they are, you know, the Victorian government in response to this is, is considering, you know, um, brow reform. And I think, you know, I think we very much have to put the pressure on, on the government to actually follow through with 
all the kind of recommendations coming through. Because, you know, since 1991, we obviously had that the Royal Commission into black deaths in custody, and most of those recommendations have the majority of those recommendations haven't been implemented. And so I think it's going to be very important to kind of keep the kind of pressure on uh, on the the state government to very much consider this kind of reform. Well, on that, the coroner also made a comment that if the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody had have been implemented, Veronica also would not have died. So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole lot of points at which Veronica's life could have been saved at the level of the magistrate and the denial of bail. If she'd been granted bail, she would most likely still be alive today. If she'd been granted proper, uh, if she'd been taken to the hospital um, when she was in prison, when she was suffering extreme ill health, her life probably would have been saved if the recommendations of the um, Royal Commission had been implemented. Her life would have been saved if the prison officers didn't have such a judgmental and discriminatory attitude towards Aboriginal people but also people who are suffering from drug addictions. Her life also would have been saved. So this there's so many points at which Veronica's life could have been saved. All right. Um, so just um, you can read um, you can read that article up on on Green Left, um, and it's titled Victoria Croner calls for urgent um, or urgent change to bail law. And I think we'll also Green Left will also be covering kind of further kind of developments on this as as it progresses, um, as new developments kind of arise. So. Um, I thought that maybe for the next three minutes we could possibly play another song drawing on, um, drawing on some of the recommendations that Mike Ward has, um, brought to our attention, um, in his article 10 albums that aim to change the world in 2023. And it was probably quite appropriate that we'll probably talk, um, having a bit of discussion on Palestine before, um, because that's, um, essentially I'm going to be playing, uh, a track. One of the albums that's recommended is, um, is Amrat by, Rashna Nahis, who is a Palestinian kind of musician who has released an album this year. So I'll be playing um, her title track, Amarat, um, and um, hope listeners enjoy for the next 33 minutes. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Hit, hit. 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR um, on FreeCR 855 AM. Um, now um, we have our first gra- um, guest uh, on the program. Um, we're very happy um, to be speaking to Tali O. Um, Anthony, who is a professor of law um, at the University of Te- um, Technology um, at UTS Sydney, and Talio. Um, wrote an article recently titled um, Alcohol Bans and Law and Order Responses to Crime in Alice Springs Haven't Worked in the Past and Won't Work Now. And this was published, I guess, in the conversation. And I guess one probably important reason we have her as guests for our program is probably in the media. The media has just been dominated. Um, there's been, I guess, a discussion about this you know, crime wave um, in Alice Springs. And, of course, we're seeing the kind of corporate media and right-wing politicians attempting to kind of use this to kind of drum up kind of racism. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Talio. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so um, thank you very much for being on our program. And I guess I'll, the first kind of question, um, in your kind of article and one of the kind of opening sort of paragraphs is that You've argued that since the advert of colonisation, um, interventions to curb Aboriginal crime and alcohol have often, guess, been deployed to control and harm First Nations communities and people. And I guess, what are your some of your comments on the background to this? Yeah, I think what I'm reflecting on when I write that is that, and this is an article with Vanessa Napoljari Davis, who lived in a town camp in. Alice Springs and is a researcher at Tungandjira Council, which has been advocating uh, against the intervention, for example, for many years. Um, so when when we write that, we really mean that um, there's a hysteria in the mainstream media that likes to focus on crime in a very specific way. And that way in Alice Springs, in the Northern Territory and across Australia, 
is very much targeted at First Nations people and it demonises them in those um, characterisations of crime to suggest that they're a problem, that they need to be punished and that um, ultimately a framework of control um, in government policy needs to, to step in to, um, to ensure that their lives are subordinate to the, to the state. And so I think that the, the device of, of crime um, it has been quite a strategic one. It's used in social control across across many societies. So it's not just in Australia; it's, it's right across um, the globe in in, um, in in hierarchical societies. But I think it has a very particular feature here in how it targets First Nations people and how it leads to policies where First Nations people are governed in a very top way. Uh, top-down way that is coercive, and we saw that absolutely with the intervention. And I guess probably one of the kind of very specific kind of examples, and you covered this in your article, and I guess, and I think this is probably important, I guess, for our listeners as well. I mean, and especially in the context of how we can, how we understand and respond to the, to what's happening in Alice Springs and how the, the media is responding it. But I guess, can you guess, give us a bit of a, I guess a historical background on the Northern Territory intervention, which was very much a classic example of, of those kind of policies. It was started, I guess, in 2007 by, um, the Howard government. And I guess specifically, I want, I want to kind of hear your comments on, you know, why was this, you know, why was this, policy implemented and I guess what was the ramifications of that policy for the First Nations community? Sure so the intervention was um, I think in some ways the uh, culmination of many years of racism in the Northern Territory but it was taken to new heights um, in 2007 as you suggest so in the lead up to that period around um, mid-2006 there were reports coming out from Northern Territory prosecutors that um, there were um, endemic crime levels in particularly remote Aboriginal communities. So there are hundreds of remote communities and homelands in the Northern Territory that are, are very much still um, operating according to Aboriginal ways of um, of doing law and, and culture and, and uh, they speak language in community. And so they operate in a way that does not suit the contemporary colonial system um, because they haven't uh, assimilated to all the forms of, um, you know, capitalism and colonialism that requires subordination to, to a certain type of living. Um, and, and so in, in the context of that, in 2006, there were claims that these communities were out of control, that they were harming their children. And then there were media reports from um, the ABC, concerningly, that there were pedophile rings in Aboriginal communities. And Chris Graham later, through a you know, really extensive and thorough investigation, proved that these were fabrications and there were never any pedophile rings. And in fact, um, Michael Gould in the New Matilda um, in subsequent years reported that if there were any pedophile rings, it was happening from white people working in the mining industry. Um, but certainly there were no pedophile rings in Aboriginal communities. Nonetheless, this was a key device that was used 
to usher in the intervention in 2007 and the policy um, and laws that uh, I think symbolised the intervention and, and gave effect to the intervention were the Northern Territory National Emergency Response Act. And what that saw was the federal government stepping in to control First Nations communities across the Northern Territory. So in order to enable that to happen, and this was originally under the Howard government and, and Mal Brass as the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, to enable that to happen, they had to suspend the Racial Discrimination Act, and that act operates to protect against racial discrimination. So when you suspend that act, you're deliberately intending to discriminate, which the government was. So it suspended the act to enable the government to control the communities and to restrict a whole range of rights. And this includes rights to social security, land rights, rights to have a fair hearing in sentencing and bail decisions, um, rights to um, enter communities. So before that, there were certain governing councils that Aboriginal people controlled and they um, were able to um, direct who was able to come in and out of communities, which was very important to protect them from negative influences. Um, and all those rights got diminished under the intervention. So it really compromised not only their human rights, but their capacity to protect their land, to practice culture. And I, I think it was um, a, a huge disruption to the functioning of these communities. And, the, you know, 15 years later, because this policy, these laws were then reinstated by the Labor government, 15 years later, we're really seeing how impoverished these communities are. And... Many of the kids going into Alice Springs at the moment, they're going there because they don't have affordable food in community. They don't have air conditioning or even power. Um, they don't have jobs. They don't have access to, um, like, social security, centrelink offices, all the things. And then the kids going to Alice Springs are being blamed for being a problem. So what uh, what I would suggest is the outcomes of the intervention are now being blamed but targeted towards the Aboriginal kids who've suffered under the intervention. And it's really concerning because playing out now with the national government going to Alice Springs and talking about top-down policies again, um, it is, has all the hallmarks of 2007 when they did that. And they did it really violently then, bringing in the army, bringing in the federal police. And um, the mayor of Alice Springs, Matt Peterson, has already all for the army to be brought in for the intervention to happen again and Peter Dutton's right behind him. Yeah. That gets into, I guess, like, um, you're sort of going, I guess, into the kind of next question, I guess, and you can probably expand on some of the, that comment you sort of just made because in your kind of article, you kind of make a, a bit of a, you make a bit of a point of this. And, you know, in terms of like responding to, I guess, the kind of this from the corporate media and the, and the politicians around this Alice Springs, you know, crime wave, why do you kind of argue that the government's kind of approach risks making the same kind of, you know, mistakes? I mean, in some sense, okay, so in my opinion, I kind of, I would argue that the Northern Territory intervention was quite deliberate, but, you know, why, why do you think that, you know, that in the abstract, why does you think the government's current approach risks making these same same mistakes? Yeah, I, I think because it's responding to this media sensationalism um, in a way that's very knee-jerk. It's not um, looking um, at the issues that concern especially First Nations wellbeing and safety. Rather, it's taking a knee-jerk response to the concerns of white business, of, of, of dominant white voices, 
And I think that runs all the risks of trampling on the perspectives of First Nations people on the ground who will suffer from any type of knee-jerk, top-down response. And Albanese be going in there and, um, I guess, using his power and position to, to make these announcements, to, to kind of rush in, and even, even this review that they've um, undertaken, it hasn't been led, it hasn't been designed by First Nations people on the ground. And so I think once, it, once this takes on a national approach, all of the advocacy over many years that Aboriginal organisations and people have, have, been, um, have been positioning themselves based on their lived experience gets lost. And instead, this type of top-down expertise, political authority gets imposed on people. And I, and I think what we know in terms of um, effective ways of um, ensuring the well-being of First Nations people is that it has to be based on First Nations self-determination and unless they're leading that charge, any policies are uh, almost invariably going to be detrimental because they're done without them. And I, and I think all the good intention and all the goodwill um, cannot make up for, you know, silencing the voices of very empowered Aboriginal communities and elders on the ground. Hi Talia, I'm Sue, one of the other pre- presenters. I was just going to ask you a follow-up question. Um, there have been a few little comments, but not much in the media, about the stripping away of resources from um, from uh, you know the remote communities, and that being really a major cause of issues that are happening. And even I heard the Northern Territory Police Commissioner interviewed and he was saying, he was basically saying you can't just, you know, you can't jail, the, jail this crisis, whatever. And he was referring to the fact that the stripping away of jobs from um, remote communities, the lack of ATMs in remote communities and other people have been talking about people can't get home to their communities because they don't have the money to get home or stranded because of floods and, and other stripping away of resources from remote communities. And then there's also been, I think it's William Tillmouth from Children Ground saying he's seen these alcohol restrictions come and go, come and go, come and go over the years and it's really resulted in nothing. And I know that alcohol... Addiction is a serious issue, um, although I haven't seen them talk about, you know, <laughs> treatment for alcohol addiction or, or dealing with that. But I was just wondering if you could talk about the impact of the loss of resources in remote communities and the impact that, you know, could be having. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because when I, I um, was talking to Vanessa Napoljari Davis about her experience because she she lives um, on the town camps that have had these alcohol restrictions and her first response was if we're going to address any issue here it has to be proper resourcing of remote communities because people are given no opportunity they're living in poverty there's no sense of um, 
um, uh, facilities or opportunity or availability of, um, I guess, um, integration into into a community when you don't have any of that resourcing. And and the concern she raised was that um, what when we set up these or I think since the intervention when when we um, entrench these systems of poverty, um, it's there's going to be a flow on because the only way people can access any of these things is in Alice Springs or Darwin and they go there and they're homeless and and it, for at least white people creates these optics of chaos but for First Nations people it, it's survival um, and so I, I think you know since the intervention we've seen these communities be further starved and the solution has been a punitive one send more of these rather than more housing send more of these people to prison and fund more prisons and youth detention centres and also fund child protection centres so these kids who are Starving are seen as neglected, not thriving by the by territory families, and they're sent into foster homes, residential institutions. And so, where the government is focusing its funding and resources is all on the state interventions rather than the community empowerment. Um, and it's also, you know, I guess we can get into this another time. It's also on par with you know, the opening up of mining in the Northern Territory, of fracking, all these other things are going on to undermine First Nations connection to country. Um, and I think it is quite, it's quite quite a deliberate strategy, but we're deflecting from a focus on that, that impoverishment, that disempowerment by looking at the issue of crime, by looking at solutions relating to penality and control. Hmm. And um, maybe because um, we're running a bit on time, I guess want to kind of um, for the final kind of question, and and you can kind of attach your kind of final comments um, to conclude. I guess why, yes, in this whole discussion, why is it important that I guess First Nation voices are centred in this com- in in this conversation about how we resolve, you know, the, the challenges and the issues that Alice Springs is obviously currently facing, but also the wider um, community within the Northern Territory. Yeah. Look, I think. Um like First Nations people know the solutions, but they are the solution. I think what Susan said that, you know, of course for some people alcohol is a problem, um, and and no one no one hides behind that. Certainly not First Nations communities. They don't say we shouldn't be addressing that issue. They say let us address it. And for decades and decades, they have had solutions for trying to um, keep people safe. From, from the excesses of alcohol. And those solutions, including um, instigating dry communities where they don't let Aboriginal people, don't let people bring alcohol and drinking communities, that was their initiative. So they know how to do these things. When the government came in and imposed alcohol bans and the perimeters, that's when it started falling apart. That's when people started saying, we don't... We don't agree with those perimeters because they're not safe, because people can't drink safely in those places you're designating, including in major cities and towns. And so they have safer ways to protect people, not only from not drinking in community, but if they went out to drink, it wouldn't be on the side of the road, for example. And that's what the intervention did. It forced people into unsafe places. So if we started to listen to communities who care about those who 
who, who um, you know, children, the elders who live among them, then we can actually see things that work and, and start to also measure what works from the perspective of the community. Whereas when the government comes in, it does it without any background knowledge, without an intimate relationship, but also based on these metrics and KPIs that some consulting firm will design and assess that has nothing to do with the safety and well-being from the lived experience of First Nations people. So on, on every level, the, the process needs to be led by First Nations people if it has any chance of um, promoting the well-being and the future survival of, of First Nations people in a way that's true to their, their culture and their community and ways of being. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Talia. And, um, yeah, for, um, I think this has been a kind of very kind of important discussion. And I think for Green Left Radio, we're hoping we'll cover more of this. And especially potentially we're hoping to kind of interview some First Nations people who are on the ground to actually find out, you know, to actually cover this issue because I think it's, I think it's going to be very important to kind of counter the kind of racist kind of hysteria that is coming from the corporate media and also, you know, standing in solidarity, um, especially in, in the context of this um, very kind of intense kind of community meeting that has been reported to have happened in Alice Springs that was very much quite, you know, organised by, you know, quite led, driven by kind of some of the racism of of the kind of white um, settler population within um, Alice Springs. 100%. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Talia. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. All right, we'll just go play um, a quick announcement and we might quickly have a bit of time to do the activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And just to um, give a bit of highlight to some of the events that are happening in, um, that, ha- that, uh, that are coming up, um, there's going to be a rally, um, Solidarity with Palestine, um, Stand Against Israeli Violence, organised by Free Palestine Melbourne. Um, that's going to be happening on Friday tonight at 6pm at the State Library. The next event is there's going to be uh, a rally, permanent protection visas for all refugees, no more empty promises, which is going to be happening on Saturday, February 11th at 1pm at the State Library. Also an Iranian rally tomorrow, um, Saturday. Also February... Oh, sorry, I'm just getting... Oh, sorry, I actually forgot to think. Um, there's another rally. You want to say? Yeah, also there's an Iranian rally um, tomorrow. The fourth of uh, Saturday, the fourth of February at five thirty at the State Library, because there's the massive protests still happening across Iran 
Um, there's also a strike wave happening across Iran. And there have also been a lot of incredibly tragic and distressing executions happening of young people in Iran, um, as well as the jailing of thousands and thousands of young people. Um, so definitely come along to the Iranian rally um, tomorrow at 5.30 at State Library if you can. All right, and now the next, um, some of the other, there's also um, the other events I want to highlight as well is there's going to be um, a rally, Stop Logging Native Forests, at 10 p.m., 10 a.m. at the Parliament House on Tuesday, February the 7th. Um, and then the other event I want to highlight is there's going to be, um, there's going to be a, a public forum um, titled, um, there's going to be a public forum organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance um, titled Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, um, featuring Lydia Forp, um, Green Senator Jabaron Gunnar Gotramari woman, um, and Uncle Gary Murray, who's part of the Victorian Traditional Owners Land Justice Group. And so I think this is going to be an important kind of public forum because, um, it's you know, with the kind of incoming voice referendum on voice to parliament, discuss, there's obviously a lot of discussion about the best ways to fight for treaty sovereignty and First Nations. And I think, you know, the the massive kind of Invasion Day kind of protests, you know, um, mob- had mobilised tens of thousands of people, uh, you know, is, a cost, is another sign of the growing movement for First Nations justice. So this forum will happen on Monday, February the 20th at 6.30pm with dinner from 6pm at the Drill Hall at the Mo- Drill Hall Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne, with the Drill Hall entrance on Ferry Street. All right. Well, I might just go, I'll play um, that... Um, that, that's it for some of the, some of the events that we're acting, uh, advertising on the actors calendar. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, and I'll just go play a quick announcement. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at buy-alliance.org, email info at buy-alliance.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we're joined today by our, our final guest for the program, um, Andrew Shooter, um, who we've actually um, previously interviewed on previous quarter programs, but this time, um, but Andrew Shooter is part of the, um, the campaign group Action for Public Housing in New South Wales in, um, based in Sydney. And, um, basically, this is a new, this is a public housing activist group that's kind of um, formed. I mean, very much in response to kind of like the whole issue of the housing crisis and the need for, I guess, a massive expansion of public housing. So, good morning, Andrew. 
Good morning, Jacob. And what can you can you give us, I guess, a bit of a background on the campaign group Action for Public Housing? I guess in terms of, I guess, a bit of the, a political background to how this activist group has been formed, and what what are some of the kind of issues affecting housing in New South Wales? Yeah, sure. Well, um, a lot of the uh, inner city uh, housing uh, estates, public housing estates, are. Uh, you know, have been um, being demolished and redeveloped. Uh, sometimes uh, entirely privatised, like um, the uh, um, iconic Sirius building that people may uh, know just near the Sydney Harbour Bridge. That cube, brutalist cube, sort of um, building. Um, you know, that's being sold off. That has been sold off, and now is multi-million dollar. Um, you know, apartments. Um, but also other estates um, in um, Millers Point, The Rocks, uh, Glebe, uh, Waterloo um, and uh, Everly, near where I live, um, were being sold off. And um, the housing crisis and rents just getting worse. Um, so this group, um, Action Public Housing, started to get um, more active um, about two years ago and was holding... Um, protests and barbecues, uh, free barbecues at um, various public housing estates um, to try to raise awareness about the issue. And uh, it's really ramping up now as we get close to the New South Wales state election, which is next month. And um, what can you tell us about some of the activities um, that um, Action for Public Housing is going to be kind of doing, and especially some of the kind of demands that you're kind of putting forward to the government? Yeah, well, um, one of the most common things that's happening with um, a lot of these public housing estates is that um, the government thinks, oh, this land is valuable. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, knock down all the public housing and uh, rebuild on it with um, 30% public housing and 70% private housing. Um, and... Uh, you know, we, we say that if it's public housing land, it should be 100% public housing in any redevelopment. Um, we know that over the last um, 30 years, the total proportion of public housing in Australia has halved. It's gone from 6% as a fraction of all housing down to 3%. Um, and just redeveloping these things and only ever so slightly increasing the number of public housing, um, you know, homes on the land is just basically not keeping up with uh, population growth. So the overall proportion of public housing is shrinking. Um, and this is necessary. We need a large proportion of public housing, um, you know, up to countries like uh, Sweden or Vienna, Austria, you know, up where, where you can get up to 20, 30, um, even 60%. Um, we need, we need a higher proportion in order to keep prices reasonable, uh, for everybody. Um, so we say, you know, 100% public housing on these sites. Uh, there are some sites, um, like one at Redfern, just adjacent to Redfern Oval where, um, um, you know, the Rabbitohs train. That was public housing land. The housing was demolished um, 15 years ago and has been left vacant. And what we're saying there is build new public housing on this public housing land. Um, 
So we're not just saying no to certain redevelopments and demolitions. We're saying yes, yes, please build. And the, the political call that we make or the slogan that we have is defend and extend public housing. Uh, the principle of it is so important. Um, just it's Sue, Sue here, Andrew, um, as part of the discussion this morning. I just wanted to ask um, where the government has been, has succeeded or is still attempting to um, get rid of public housing in the inner city. Um, have they just been flogging it off to private enterprise? And secondly, where they've retained some public housing is it genuine public housing or is it this is it um run by uh so-called not-for-profit housing associations and i'm yeah. asking this question because in melbourne where um there you know i always um frightened and suspicious every time they talk about a redevelopment uh because you know we're going to lose public housing out of it or um, but what they've, what they did in Melbourne is that they, um, did these re, they're doing these redevelopments. We sort of lost the fight, although we did give them a run for their money. And a proportion was supposedly maintained as public housing, but it's actually being run by, um, it's still in the ownership of the Office of Housing, but it's being run by, Social, um, social housing or community housing providers. So in a sense, it's sort of semi-privatised. And the other thing that they did is they, of the remaining so-called public housing, they reduced the number of bedrooms from three bedroom to one or two bedroom. So all of the families were pushed out. So I was just wondering if you could give us yeah. a little bit more detail of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, you're, the exact same thing is happening here in New South Wales. Um, that's why we hear the term social housing um, being used rather than public housing. But when they use the term social housing, it's a way of um, eroding the distinction between fully publicly owned, publicly operated you know, public housing and merely affordable housing, which is... Um, housing, you know, rented out at a little bit less than market rates and uh, operated by uh, community housing providers, you know, St George Housing, Bridge Housing, there's other, there's other companies, there's other organisations. Um, now, um, by saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be social housing, they're never very clear when they use that term you know, what proportion of one or the other it is. But generally speaking, in all of the redevelopment um, of public housing um, in New South Wales that we're experiencing, any redevelopment will basically mean that it will then become merely social housing, sometimes owned by the government and sort of, you know, operated by um, community housing providers, Um in other cases, just entirely donated um, to the community housing provider and run um, as affordable housing. Um, and really, the um, the problem with that is the 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 rents are not as uh, low, uh, not as affordable as public housing. 
um, and the conditions that tenants live under are more restrictive and, and uh, they, can be, they can be evicted much more easily. Well, that is really dangerous um, because if it's like in Melbourne, the community housing providers house very few vulnerable people. So they house very few people on Newstart and they pretty much never house anyone who's on the youth allowance. Um, and it's because they're meant to be on a sort of growth model of where they're getting loans from the banks to build more of their social housing and so therefore they prefer people who are working full-time or part-time who can pay um, slightly below market rates. Um, And so that is really dangerous because a lot of people have no idea that these housing providers um, are not housing, uh, house so few people who are on government benefits. Yeah, uh, that's right. And they, they think it's somewhat of a saving, but the one distinction is that uh, affordable housing, by being run, pri- run or operated privately, it becomes eligible for Commonwealth rent assistance. So it's, they, they actually end up, the government ends up paying extra to really um, kind of prop up or support these community housing providers' business model. Um, so you know, they'd, they'd, you know, really disagree with that as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, Andrew, I um, just wanted um, kind of hear um, hear some final comments, I guess, from you. Um, I, I want to see if you kind of have any kind of final comments to make, but I also want to hear, I guess, your um, comment on some of the activities that the Action for Public Housing doing, in, um, Action for Public Housing has been doing in New South Wales in relation to maybe um, your relationship with um, public housing kind of tenants? Because I know I'm aware that there has been a number of public housing groups um, that have sort of developed that have been kind of led by the residents of some of the public housing estates that have been impacted by, you know, New South Wales government sell-offs. Yeah. Well, um, one thing that Action Public Housing um, is very... Um, feels is extremely important is that we're there to amplify the voices and give voice to um, public housing tenants. Um, so at all our rallies, you know, sometimes all of the speakers are uh, public housing tenants. Um, you know, we had a barbecue in Waterloo last weekend, um, Aboriginal uh, speakers and public and other public housing tenants. Um, and so it's really focused on um, th- those voices. Um and we're leading up to uh, a big rally uh, on February the 11th um, at Sydney Town Hall, uh, which is um, it's just a, a basically a, a rally. Uh, it's a housing call. Well, it's campaign for housing justice, and um, you know we're we're calling for um, you know a, a, a massive expansion of public housing and a rent freeze. Um, and we're trying to get basically housing out of the market and to be seen as a human right. Um, and, uh, you know, through our campaign activities, um, you know, we're holding, uh, regular, um, regular planning meetings where everyone is invited, um, and welcome to participate. Um, we hold, um, you know, uh, monthly, um, tickets in prominent places, handing out leaflets. Um, so it's very um, democratic um, and very participatory um, and, um, you know, it's trying to build a broad coalition, unions, student groups, um, tenants uh, and so on. 
And, um, yeah, I think because of the openness of that and the, and the good political aims, uh, it's actually been uh, successful in, in getting heard and, and um, exposing the issue. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Andrew. Um, yeah, and all the best, I think, with um, the rally that you have um, planned on February the 11th. Solidarity yeah. from Melbourne. Okay, thank you very much, Sue and Jacob. Bye. All right, so we're just interviewing Andrew Shooter, who is part of um, Action for Public Housing in New South Wales. Um, and we thought it would be good to sort of, you know, have a bit of a, hear a bit um, from uh, ongoing kind of um, campaign that is um, that is happening um, else um, that is happening in um, New South Wales. And yeah, we wish all the best with that um, that campaign's kind of success. Now I'll just go play um, a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. All right, we're getting to the end of our program, but um, Sue wanted to kind of Ray um, wanted to kind of discuss a current, I guess, a current update around this whole kind of Centrelink kind of robo debt. Yes, yeah, so um, some people will have seen the reports in the media about this um, uh, commission of inquiry about robo debt, and I'm glad this uh, royal commission has been called because. It is forcing a whole lot of senior public servants and um, now some politicians and their staffers to be um, questioned. And, of course, they're all uh, passing the back on to other people as to, you know, so-and-so didn't tell us that this was illegal, etc. But it is absolutely clear that the government and the top brass of the public service was told in no um, uncertain terms that this was an illegal scheme, um, the theft of all of this money from um, people who were either currently welfare recipients or had previously been welfare recipients as a result of averaging their income through the year, which created uh, false debts, debts that people did not owe. Um, And... But it is interesting that what the media hasn't done is explain the reason why the politicians were so readily able to accept robo-debt, etc. And the reason is that the politicians, especially the coalition, but even the Labor Party is not that much better, um, they basically are opposed to the state being forced to um, pay welfare for people who are unemployed, people who are sick, 
people who are single parents, people who are age pensioners and all the rest of it because, you know, there's an ideological reason why the coalition supported this scheme regardless of the horror stories that came out. And really, there should be criminal charges brought against the senior public servants and the, um, and the politicians who were responsible for this scheme. I mean, one positive thing that was revealed through the Royal Commission is that some of the lower level Centrelink staff did try to help people and did try to alert their superiors about the terrible impact of this scheme. Um, but, you know, so the ordinary Centrelink workers were not the ones who caused this scheme. They actually tried to help. They could see the horrors this scheme was causing to people. And real human beings committed suicide as a result of being hounded by debt collectors to pay hey, money they were not, um, they did not owe. Yeah, apologies. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for that update, um, Sue. Um, but yeah, I'd like to, we'll have to kind of conclude the kind of program here. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, and stay tuned for Earth Matters, which I think is playing after this. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Thanks. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1800 634 Arise you workers from their slumbers Arise you prisoners of want For reason in revolt now thunders And at last since the age of Kant Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap